From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. Today is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a time to remember the life and legacy of the civil rights icon. While King's largely remembered for his role in multiple desegregation movements, what many don't know is that many of his ideas and frameworks were largely inspired by the Baton Rouge bus boycott of 1953. In 1956, King came to Baton Rouge to study the blueprint of the protest and would later apply those same techniques to the successful Montgomery bus boycott later that year. Back in 2010, the LSU Library's T. Harry Williams Center created an oral history project, and in one episode, they explore the relationship between Baton Rouge activists and Dr. King. This podcast episode, titled People rode free by day and paid for it at night. How the Baton Rouge community influenced Martin Luther King Jr. combines first-person testimonies from activists who knew Dr. King, as well as narration and research by the library's oral history director, Jennifer Abraham Kramer. So today, we're going back to the archives to give this 12-year-old podcast a second listen. Martin Luther King, before he was famous, used to come to Southern we had what was called a Vespa series, and it was a lecture series, and he'd come and he'd talk to us. We had no idea that he was going to become as famous as, as he would become, but uh, we got a chance to meet him then. I remember at Northwestern, he came up, and I was invited to the luncheon they gave to him, so I, I, I got a chance to meet him at various points. Uh, these sorts of things changed America. Voting Rights Act of, uh, 1964, Lyndon Johnson, all these things had had everything to do with with, with, with the changing of uh, of America and the South. And let me be specific: when uh, all the places, the eating places, were open up in Baton Rouge, I had a friend, Rogers Newman. I said he was studying out in California. He was doing some research on that. I said, "Come back to Baton Rouge." Blacks are eating everywhere. <laughs> they were, look, they could go to uh, Sears and Robux, they could go to Walgreens, they could go to Strubis, all these places that were not that were not open before. I remember he and I, to keep these places open, after they had opened up, we'd get in our car up here at Southern and drive all the way out to Sears and Robux to have a hot dog. These integration successes to which Dr. Perkins refers were accomplished in large part thanks to efforts of those who practice King's philosophy of nonviolence. The doctrine of nonviolence, in a nutshell, was that the power of nonviolence is not in humiliating one's opponent, but in winning through fostering understanding and reconciliation. This philosophy was very influential in Baton Rouge community efforts to integrate. Along with the United Defense League and others, one influential organization in desegregation efforts was the Baton Rouge Council on Human Relations. Dr. Paul Y. Burns, a leader in the council, was instrumental in the desegregation efforts. Burns is a World War II veteran, a renowned LSU professor in forestry, and a winner of several awards for peacemaking and humanitarian efforts. Here, he recalls King's influence on the council, which itself was integrated at the time, and their efforts to desegregate the Baton Rouge public facilities. Well, in 1968, we had another project. Ralph Drager and I went down to the highways department, Louisiana Department of Highways, down by the governor's mansion, and we were investigating uh, racial discrimination in their signs, and we <laughs> we found four kinds of restrooms. <laughs> We had uh, 
white ladies and black women and white gentlemen and black men, I think. It was ridiculous. So, well, actually, in a sense, it's even more ridiculous because the Louisiana legislature, back the time that building was built, and it was built the same time the LSU library was built, about 1958, the, the new Middleton Library. They had a law that you had to have separate drinking fountains and separate restrooms, I think. In the case of Middleton Library, uh, you'll find on each floor two drinking fountains. And the reason is one originally was black for blacks and the other was for whites. Some LSU student over there uh, wrote, uh, under white he put trash. <laughs> sense of humor, you know. So it wasn't long before they tore those signs down. That's the reason you go to Middleton Library, you got you got these two drinking fountains, identical, side side by side, separate but equal, you know. <laughs> well, the same deal, I guess, was going on down the highway deal, and, and we thought that was ridiculous. So we wrote to the, the highway department head and didn't get a response, so we wrote to the governor. And we got a response, and, and, and those signs were changed. Uh, it's kind of like Martin Luther King Jr. and his uh, nonviolent protest, where you have uh, a good cause, and you know you're right, and you also know that the people that you're protesting about know in their hearts it's wrong what they're doing. In 1953, the citizens' African-American residents boycotted the public transportation system, organized an alternative carpooling system, and in eight days collapsed the city's bus system. Leadership of the Baptist ministers, mass meetings, nonviolent protest, and the organization of alternatives to public services were hallmarks of successful integration efforts throughout the 50s and 60s, and Baton Rouge citizens were early leaders in this movement. In early 1956, King paid a visit to Baton Rouge that would irrevocably change the course of 20th century history. He came here to study the blueprint of the Baton Rouge bus boycott. After meeting with organizers of the boycott, he returned to Alabama and applied the lessons he learned in Louisiana, which ultimately led to a United States Supreme Court decision that declared the Alabama and Montgomery laws requiring segregated buses to be unconstitutional. A victory for democracy indeed. Living in a post-war Jim Crow, Louisiana, Baton Rouge dentist Dupuy Anderson was a graduate of Southern University in Baton Rouge and served as a major in the Air Force during World War II. He participated in the 1953 bus boycott and filed suit to desegregate the undergraduate division of Louisiana State University. Here, Anderson recalls the topic of discussion at the meeting between the Baton Rouge bus boycott organizers and Martin Luther King. One of the things, and most important things, he wanted to know how we did to get the community to rally behind us and, and to get the business people, the filling stations and the like. The black businesses. Black businesses to gain their support. They had planned to go through. I think Martin Luther's plan was, regardless, we're going to boycott. But he knew they needed complete support of the black community. Here we hear from Anderson again, and he comments on the political and cultural context of Jim Crow, Louisiana. Coming up in a segregated community, my experience was very limited. 
My thinking was very limited to other careers. We didn't even think of a black policeman or black judge. Willis Reed was the owner and publisher of the African-American newspaper, the Baton Rouge Post. At the time of the boycott, Reed was an insurance salesperson and was instrumental in the organization of the boycott, helping bring attention to it and acting as a bus driver during the free ride program. Here, interviewed in 1994, he recalls how separate but equal manifested itself in daily life. Uh, I would deliver the LSU, but I couldn't go up to the front. I couldn't carry the bill up there to get anybody to sign it because I was black. When I carried the eggs or chicken or whatever it is, I just had to stand around and wait until somebody go up to the front or somebody from the front would come back there to take my bill up there. Olivia Huey was a domestic worker and a baker for Morrison's Food Services. She depended on public transportation and supported the Baton Rouge bus boycott. Interviewed here in 2002, she describes the segregated busing system in Baton Rouge at the time. In some ways, I can look back on it, it was humiliating for the blacks because you get on the bus and you paid what everybody else paid, but you couldn't sit where everybody else would sit. There was a divided section. You would go to that section and sit on the bus. If you sat anywhere else, you were asked to go to the back of the bus. Reverend T.J. Jemison came to Baton Rouge from Selma, Alabama in 1949 to pastor the Mount Zion Baptist Church, where he has remained. Jemison was a leader in the United Defense League and was pivotal in the organization of the Baton Rouge bus boycott. On February 11, 1953, Reverend Jemison went to the city parish council to complain of the fare increase and the unfairness of black people having to stand in the back of overcrowded buses when there were empty seats to the front. On February 25th, the council approved Ordinance 222 in an attempt to correct the situation. The city council heard our plea. They passed an ordinance. The ordinance was that said that black people could sit from the back to the front, and white could sit from the front to the back. There would be no reserve seats, and that first come, first serve. The ordinance went into effect, but it was widely ignored. Here, Willis Reed describes the ramifications of applying this ordinance and how bus drivers refused to comply. The next morning, a lady got on the bus, and when she got on the bus, the bus driver comes up, put the lady off and try to arrest her. When the police got there, he arrested the lady. But then somebody came from police headquarters and said, you ain't got no business arresting this lady. And he told the police, and you go back to headquarters, I'll handle this. There was some back and forth resistance from the bus drivers. Some were suspended for not complying with the ordinance. A four-day driver strike ensued on June 15th. On June 18th, the Louisiana Attorney General declared Ordinance 222 in violation of state segregation laws. That night, over 200 African Americans attended a United Defense League meeting, and Raymond Scott announced over the WLCS radio station plans for the Baton Rouge West boycott to begin the following day. The bus driver strike ended the following day, and African Americans in South Baton Rouge began boycotting city buses, implementing a free ride system in its place. Here, Anderson recalls a stirring moment that night on June 18th. 
the night before the boycott, one little woman asked to speak. She got up and gave a very stirring speech that she had an old raggedy car and she would run it until you couldn't run it anymore. That morning at five o'clock, we were all in place with our automobile ready to accept the challenge. Here, Almenia Freeman, a boycott supporter, recalls her efforts in provision of alternative transportation. When the bus boycott come along in 1953, I was happy to help with that. We met with Mr. Matthews and Reverend Jemison and others. I was available to get out and drive up and down the road, take people where they had to go. It's like a daily job. It was a pleasure, you know. Reginald Brown explains the mass meetings, which was also an important part of the Montgomery boycott. Mass meetings basically took place at churches. And when they put on this big mass meeting, Memorial Stadium, that was an effort to show unity, strength, and bring about the raising of funds to finance this massive bus boycott. Here, Jimison discusses the financial function of the mass meetings. Well, at night, when we had our mass meetings, we would take up money that would pay for the gas and the tires and whatever else happened to the cars during the time they were driving. The, the people rode free in the day and paid for it at night. Willie Spooner Jr. was a school teacher and a boycott supporter. Here, he explains the level of commitment to the boycott that was necessary for riders who needed public transportation for their livelihood. And the boycott did work. Baton Rouge's public transportation system was crippled. On June 23rd, Jimison and other black leaders entered into a compromise to end the boycott and resume business. The result was Ordinance 251, reserving the first two seats for white people and the last two seats for black people. Whites would fill the bus from front to back, and blacks would fill the bus from back to front. The black community was split over this compromise, but the boycott did not continue. Here, Johnny Jones, an attorney for the United Defense League and boycott organizer, comments on the compromise. He went down and entered into a compromise with the mayor and the city council that they wouldn't desegregate the bus. Jemison thought that was right, as long as it was separate but equal, because that was the law. And there wasn't any animosity between us. We just said I didn't agree. Because, to me, separate but equal was wrong. Willie Spooner Jr. points out that the original demands of the boycott were met. Everybody was glad we had a chance to go back and ride the bus. And, uh, you know, you can see where you ought to sit. The person who uh, rode the bus uh, was really happy that it was over. We weren't going to ride the bus unless there were certain demands that were met. And those demands were met. Here, Anderson gives his opinion of the compromise in relation to the city politics of the time. Baton Rouge is known for appeasement. Give me a little taste of the pie, and they quiet us down. Those of us that wanted the whole pie or half of the pie was rabble rousing. 
Picking up in the interview with Anderson and Maxine Crump, Anderson talks about the lessons that King applied from the conclusion of the Baton Rouge bus boycott. Did he respond to the compromise? Who? Dr. King. Did he comment on the compromise that took place with the Baton Rouge boycott? No, I don't think he did. But he went through with his boycott. And it was my feeling. This is the reason why he was successful. Because he learned from the He compromise? learned from it. He learned from it. Uh, we could have done the same thing in this community. You know, we started off a lot of things right here in Baton Rouge, but we did not carry it to the complete finish. One of the major differences between the Baton Rouge and Montgomery bus boycotts is that King went through federal courts, whereas Jimison went through the state court. Here, Johnny Jones recalls to McKinley High School interviewers the reasoning behind Jimison's decision. Do you think the bus boycott may have just been too soon for Baton Rouge to handle? And that's the right question to follow that up, and it's going right along with what I'm saying. The time had not quite come for Jemison to do what Martin Luther King did. But he did a, a yeoman's job, a very good job. He started the ball rolling. He got things started. He opened the eyes. Martin Luther King sought out Jemison to get information on how to proceed with a boycott. He was a forerunner. And he, his philosophy was filled with good intentions. Let them see that we still believe that they will do right. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. While the LSU Oral History podcast you've just listened to may be 12 years old and the stories told in the episode even older, the lessons we can take away from all those interviews are still relevant today. Here to give us some more behind-the-scenes information on this ambitious oral history project is Jennifer Abraham Kramer, director of the T. Harry Williams Center for Oral History at LSU Libraries. She's also the narrator of this podcast that you just heard. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Karen. I really appreciate it. Would you take us back 12 years? Uh, of course, this is before the big boom of, of podcasts. Where did the idea for this podcast come from? And, and what were you trying to accomplish by sharing these stories? Well, the mission of the T. Harry Williams Center is to document and preserve first-person narratives about Louisiana history and culture. And one of the ways we tried sharing with the public was to launch a podcast series back in 2009 to highlight some of the center's most important collections. And this episode was one of the first. And it was, you know, around uh, January, it was around Martin Luther King's birthday. And we had all of these wonderful interviews and we wanted to celebrate the connection uh, that he has to the Louisiana and to the civil rights and, and our own connection to the civil rights leader here in Baton Rouge. Now, where exactly did you you get all of these oral history recordings? I know it's it's quite a span of time. And I understand there were even some interviews gathered by high school students. How did you get them involved? So this project was before my time back here and uh, back in the 90s here at the Williams Center for Oral History. And Pamela Dean, who was the director at the time, were, and Mary Abair Price, 
who eventually became the director, and Petra Monroe Hendry, who was in the Department of Education and Curriculum Development here at LSU. They all got together and uh, joined forces to document the history of Old South Baton Rouge. And this was a five-year program. It encompassed a couple of different topics. And so they covered the history of Old South Baton Rouge, McKinley High School oral history, African-American churches in the area, Black businesses in the area. The fourth summer was the Baton Rouge bus boycott, and the fifth summer was social organization. So this is five uh, summer projects. It was funded by the Federal Grant Youth Program's Job Training Partnership Act, and several people were involved. So you had McKinley High School students who did a bulk of the interviews. You had some graduate students who helped out as well, and you had uh, some staff at the center, and then you had volunteers, for example, like Maxine Crump. So the center trained the students as part of that JTPA Act to do interviews, to do transcriptions, and to interact with the elders in their community to get these primary sources so that they could be preserved for uh, posterity. A line that really stuck out to me in the episode was a quote from civil rights leader Dr. Dupree Anderson, who said, Baton Rouge is known for appeasement. Give us a little taste of the pie and they quiet us down. Those of us that wanted the whole pie or half of the pie was rabble rousers. I'm wondering what you make of that quote. What was your reaction to hearing it more than a decade ago? And what's your reaction to hearing it today? So the Baton Rouge bus boycott demonstrated the power of the economic boycott of peaceful and well-organized protests, but it did not end segregation in Louisiana because it was fought at the state level in a Jim Crow legal system where separate but equal was the law. But as we see later, Dr. King was influenced by the Baton Rouge bus boycott. And as we all know, the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, two years later, had more success at the federal level. What uh, Dupuy Anderson is reflecting on here is the fact that this was fought in the state courts. And this was, this was ordinances, Ordinance 222 that ended up being Ordinance 251. And there was a division in the among the community who worked hard on this boycott. Some people wanted to take it further and go to the federal courts, and some people wanted to take it as far as they took it. This this podcast is largely about how Dr. King was inspired and informed by the Baton Rouge bus boycott as he would go on to contribute to the Montgomery bus boycott. The podcast discussed what these efforts in Baton Rouge taught Dr. King, but what do we know about what he brought to Baton Rouge? Okay, well, Dr. Jewel Perkins talks a lot about that in uh, his quote, where he talks about Dr. King's early visits to Baton Rouge and um, preaching, coming to visit and do Sunday vespers in the choir. So there, it, there was it was not Dr. King's first trip to Baton Rouge when he came to study the the blueprint for the Baton Rouge bus boycott. There was already a relationship, and I believe that, um, you know, Reverend Jemison was from Selma, Alabama, so there may have already been a relationship within that community there. Jennifer Abraham Kramer, director of the T. Harry Williams Center for Oral History at the LSU Libraries. Jennifer, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest today, director of the T. Harry Williams Center for Oral History at the LSU Libraries, Jennifer Abraham Kramer. Special thanks to all the researchers who worked on this project, including 
the McKinley High School students. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor, Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.